Let's check with the Beach Boys. Brian, uh, what do you think of those haircuts? I think they look great. By the way, John, is it true you guys have your own private barber? No, it's a dirty rumor we don't. <laughs> no, we cut it ourselves. Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Sail On Podcast. This is Wyatt in Nashville, Tennessee. I am joined by the ever-elusive but always-present Jason Brewer. Just moving in a grooving, baby. That's right. And today, we've got a lot to talk about, so we're going to jump on into it with a little recap of where we've been with our tribute group called Sail On. Uh, We had a little weekend in Florida, which was really nice. It was bright, sunny skies and beautiful weather, especially for the type of music that we play. And uh, we met some really cool people and we saw some old friends. We saw uh, our friend Mike Connor and, of course, the the engineer of the Beach Boys uh, for many of their albums, Steve Desper, down in Clearwater, which was awesome. We played a car show and it was a lot of fun. And yep. uh, we played a show in uh, Boca Raton where we got to meet one of our patrons, Todd Vidum. So thanks, Todd. It was great talking with you. And uh, we look forward to seeing you again when we come back down. But moving on, we've got a few shows coming up. Tomorrow, we are actually playing a gig with the four freshmen, which is pretty exciting. So if you catch this in time... Um, we're playing in Aiken, South Carolina, um, this Saturday, March 2nd. And then uh, we're also going to be playing some shows the following week um, in Iowa and Wisconsin. So check that out on our website, sailonsounds.com, if you're interested. We've got a lot of shows posted. We're going to be moving in a grooving all over the U.S., so we'd love to meet some of you guys. And I had somebody ask me why we didn't have you know, a, a full schedule or whatever. So just keep keep an eye out because we add dates constantly. So just because you don't see your city there yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Also, feel free to send us an email, you know, say, hey, you need to come play here. We love that. Yeah, for sure. So hit us up, sailonpodcast at gmail.com. Wanted to give a shout out to some of our new patrons of the show, Charles Needle, Garrett Cash, and Jamie Arnett. We have a Patreon page and we post bonus episodes for you guys that are interested in some more content and want to help support the show and keep this show advertisement free, which is awesome. Today we posted our version of our Dream Beach Boys anthology live set, basically. So it was an hour of live material that encapsulated all the different eras of the Beach Boys and it was a lot of fun to put together and there's some deep cuts in there and also some big hits. So check that out if you're interested at sailon.patreon.com. But Jason also just got back from a trip to California. Tell us a little bit about that. 
So I went out there to write some songs for a new Explorers Club record with my good friend Andy Paley. So big shout out to him. You guys, if you're a Brian fan, you probably know his name. He's a great writer. Um, And he's written some cool things with me, and I was very honored to sit down and work on some new material with him. And I also got up with my good buddy, Emin, who plays with a bunch of cool people like Jeremy Clyde and Badfinger and stuff like that. He's he's a guy, me and Wyatt's age, but he plays with some old classic rock guys. And he and I wrote a lot of the Together album together, so we got to write. But all of that is not quite relevant to our podcast because... I was at the uh, rehearsal and the concert they did for a, an autism benefit they do every year in LA but through the Wild Honey Foundation. The uh, gentleman who puts it on is a huge Beach Boys fan. Um, but just wanted to give a shout out to a couple of podcast listeners. Andy's one of them, our friend Andy Paley. He loves our podcast. And so, you know, he's out there listening and he's always telling me uh, things that we need to add in. But also, my good friend Dennis Dyken, who plays. He played drums for the Smithereens, and now he plays drums for Ronnie Spector. And he's a big podcast listener and a wealth of Beach Boys knowledge. And he was telling me about that weird Ten Little Indians single, Wyatt. He told me that it was a, a, a capital budget line, and they just were kind of putting things out at random to sell them. So uh-huh. called Starline was the name of the of the 45 so dennis thanks for straightening that out for me it's great to see you thank you so much for listening and my final little shout out from that trip is you know doing a podcast with wyatt is really incredible and so when we started doing this i listened to some podcasts but when we started doing it more i started really getting into checking out more music podcasts and one music podcast i've listened to for forever is uh, Andrew Sandoval's Come to the Sunshine. It's my favorite podcast, and he's my podcast hero. So big shout out to Andrew. Yeah, man. We've been jamming those for a while, and when we do our um, radio episodes on the Patreon page, he is the biggest influence on those. I love the way his his episodes flow and all the song selections and the curation and... um, he just finds all these cool little songs that I had no idea existed. And I consider myself a big fan of the genre. So big ups, big shout out to Andrew. Thank you very much for doing what you do and inspiring us. Yeah. And I got to see him at that, at that concert playing his big acoustic 12 string playing some village green preservation society by the kinks it was pretty rad so thanks for taking time to let me fan out over your podcast for a few minutes andrew yeah and i think if you want to get started with his podcast check out his brian wilson's 70th birthday episode it's really great i think it was from 2012 it's so good so please check that out and check out all his episodes you can just browse through and find a topic or a band that you like and just dive on in man it's great and today we're going to catch up on a few voicemails so first off we've got mike from rhode island hi jason and wyatt this is mike from rhode island i'll be coming up to norwood mass to see you guys perform an awesome show and also wanted to say i'm looking forward to getting my hands on some of that great new merchandise the sale on high stirrup hat the new sale on t-shirt the sale on poster and the Ceylon stickers. Looking forward to seeing you in Norwood, Mass. 
Bye. Mike, we can't wait to see you. Can't wait for you to uh, buy stuff from us and hang out with us and talk about your favorite song on MIU. <laughs> yeah, of course. So yeah, come hang out. Tell us what your favorite song on MIU is and why is it My Diane? <laughs> Next up, a voicemail from our good buddy, Kurt Baker. Hey guys, what's up? It's Kurt calling. I've been loving the podcast and I just finished listening to the Summer Days and Summer Nights album uh, review. Great, both parts. Something that you guys mentioned, but I want to just state here again, which I just don't understand. I've loved this album since I was a kid. Why did they not put a photo of Al Jardine on the cover? He was sick. Okay, okay. But how many photo sessions did they do? I think it's just such a slap in the face to Al. I mean, they could have used a photo from the next day or two days later. Oh, it's unbelievable. Unreal. I mean, there's something going on there. I mean, they left the guy off the album cover, an integral part of the band. Really weird. Just weird. Great album, though. Okay, guys. Keep on rocking. Bye. He's not on two of them. I know. It's pretty He's crazy. He's not on all summer long either. Yeah, they, they left Al off of all summer long, but they like replaced him like with like an, an alternate photo from like, you know, a different photo shoot. You know what I mean? Yeah. He's on there. Um, but it's That's like a right, picture of him like in like in his backyard or something with his wife. Yeah, what a weirdo. So, but yeah, he didn't care about that stuff, man. Like I said, he was always kind of just he liked, you know, standing in the in the in the back if you if you will. He didn't yeah, really and care I think I think stuff. a lot of I think all the great things he did with the Beach Boys and you know, the things he did with uh photo shoots or, or whatever all led up to his uh guitar solo jam on american bandstand oh god <laughs> all right everything was building to that <laughs> poor guy they put him on the spot man that was really rough all right if you don't know what we're talking about let's insert that right here Anyway, um, our next voicemail comes from another old buddy of mine, Mike Patton. Hello, guys. This is Mike from Nashville. I just wanted to call in, say great show. First of all, it's good to hear one of my best friends doing this show and uh, talking about a topic that is so important to me. I like to think that uh, here, when I listen to the show, this is an arena where I'm finally surrounded by others who uh, think like me or, or act like me, uh, where it wouldn't be weird that I wrote a 40-page paper in college outlining heroes and villains as essentially an autobiography. But uh, anyway, I love the show. Uh, trying to catch up and stay current at the same time. Uh, sorry, it took me so long to finally uh, get to the show, but I really do love what you guys are doing. I uh, just wanted to let you guys know. Uh, keep up the great work. The 65 records are so huge to me, and so I'm really liking this run that you're on right now. And I grew Party right there with those. As a musician, uh, Party has always 
been there for me is sort of like this reminder to never take things too seriously and to always keep things fun. I mean, who doesn't like a party, right? So uh, it's, yeah, I love party and I can't wait to see what you guys have to say about it. It's especially cool to dig through all of the outtakes as I'm sure you guys will, starting with that great C three CD set that was released recently. And then there's some really cool bootlegs that I got into a couple years ago. Uh, yeah, just so much there in these sessions. It shows you how, how fun it probably was to be there at these sessions. Uh, one last thing, I'm sure you guys will discuss it. Uh, the little girl I once knew, it seems to be brushed aside from this period. And I'm sure you guys are gonna talk about it, but to me, uh, it's such a cool and important song. As you guys say, sometimes possibly, you know, anyone else's best song that they had ever written if it weren't a, a Beach Boys or even a Beatles song, right? Uh, but just such a cool song from this time period. And, People rarely ever talk about it, so I can't wait to hear you guys talk about the little girl I once knew and get your thoughts on that. Anyway, uh, sorry this is so long. Keep up the great work. I'll keep listening. Thanks. Okay, so we talked about this a little bit when we were talking about summer days, summer nights, and the 65 records were a big leap forward sonically and, you know, musically. And it's been talked about a lot, you know, especially in that Smile documentary about that's when... About this time period is when Brian really hit, took a huge leap forward, like major leaps. I know we talked about today, but it's around and around all this time. You know, but it's all about the same. Um, and you, the little girl I once knew should not be brushed aside. That is one of my all-time favorite singles by anybody. So, Mike, all I got to say to your voicemail is, I mean, you're dead on. So, Mike, thanks for calling and... Uh Speaking of Little Girl I Once Knew, that's the first thing we're going to talk about today in our timeline. Brian was going into the studio to record a new original single because Capitol was on him like white on rice trying to get more hits. And um, they did this new song which was called The Little Girl I Once Knew. You gotta get a little bit faster, Don. I think there's a delay. Okay, here we go. Try the intro, everybody. And they started the tracking on October 13th in about 15 takes, and then a few days later came back and finished it with the vocals. Typical wrecking crew was on hand and all the Beach Boys there singing, including Bruce. Um, and what a fantastic song. Kind of post-surf music, pre-pet sound song for the Beach Boys in this little pocket of late 1965. And uh, in my opinion, it's kind of part two of a trilogy, and, and bear with me here, guys, but part one would be All Dressed Up for School. And then part two would be The Little Girl I Once Knew. And then part three would be Hey Little Tomboy. So Perfect. <laughs> that, needs, that needs to be a medley that Mike Love's band starts doing, and we'll do it too. And Brian, everybody. That just We need to get behind that. That needs to be a petition. Let's go on, online people. Let's do this. Hey, now listen. Uh, is everybody playing or what? Okay. Come in on that B, Al, real hard, you know, with everything. Let's go from the intro again, please. There we go. Play that intro soft, horns, okay? An intimate kind of a sound, especially with the uh, bass saxes. Here we go.
So, what do you think about this song, Jason? It's got some of that summer day, summer nights feel, but it's also got some really cool, almost pet sounds feel to it as well. So, you know, we're kind of foreshadowing here on this track. The bass line on the front of it is so good. I love the experimentation with the silence in the song, which probably, had it not had that silence, to be honest with you, it probably would have gone higher than top 20. Probably would have been, you know, top five, because the chorus is one of their best choruses to this point. It has the cool key change like they do in California Girls too, and it like kind of similar. So I love that. I love that you can really hear Bruce in the mix. His voice really cuts through on this track. So to me, when you really, especially in this era between God Only Knows, um, California Girls, this song, when Bruce really comes through the mix, I don't know. It just is exciting to me because I'm such a fan of his voice. I could talk about this song for a really long time. Uh, the organ is so cool. You could probably hear where John Lennon got some influence from this um, for Sgt. Pepper era stuff from the organ style and the bass stuff going on in this. So I think that this song was a big influence on a lot of people that were musicians. Maybe not so much the radio hit wise, but I think this was a, an influential track that does get unjustly brushed aside. What's your rating? Eight out of ten. I'm with you. I'm going to say eight out of ten. I love this song. I love the recording. Like you were saying, it, it is sort of similar to California Girls in a lot of ways. That was their last big hit. So I think he was trying to kind of keep that vibe going. And um, this was a solo Brian Wilson song. He wrote the lyrics and the music, which was rare at the time. That's why it's so good. I found a quote, interestingly enough, from as, as late as 1995, where he said, it was a fine song, except the intro is the only good part of it, and the rest didn't sound that good. I thought the song in itself sucked. I didn't like the harmonies. I thought they were sour and off-key. Which is interesting, because I think the harmonies are great, and I think the song is awesome, and he played this song a ton like with his solo group. Like I've seen him do it, and it's great. And he like opened the set with it for a while, I think. So that's an interesting quote, but... um. Another interesting quote, because we're going to be talking about the Beatles today a little bit. Um, John Lennon loved this song, and he went to say, this is the greatest. Turn it up. Turn it right up. It's got to be a hit. It's the greatest record I've heard for weeks. It's fantastic. I hope it will be a hit. It's all Brian Wilson. He just uses the voices as instruments. He never tours or does anything. Just sits at home thinking up fantastic arrangements out of his head doesn't even read music. You keep waiting for the fabulous breaks. Great arrangement. It goes on and on with all different things. I hope it's a hit so I can hear it all the time. So what a cool quote coming from John. You don't hear him get that excited about anything. Um, and I thought, you know, he nailed it. And it wasn't a big hit. I mean, it was a top 20 hit, like Jason said, but 
um, a lot of DJs didn't want to play it because of the long breaks. It had little three second breaks of silence. And that was kind of like a no, no for sure in the radio world, because people would think that the song was over or they would change the channel. Cause they, right. You know, that was like an eternity for radio. So a lot of DJs didn't play it. It did, it did better in major markets for some reason, but it just wasn't the big hit that they were hoping coming after the huge success of California girls and help me Rhonda. But, um, a few weeks later, they released uh, Barbara Ann, which kind of definitely put an end to any chance that this song had at climbing the charts. Um, it was the last original song they released before they did Pet Sounds. It was on par with, with that level of songwriting. I think that at this point, you can definitely tell that Brian was experimenting with some bass part movement that was a little more classical oriented and not pop. And also just the arrangement, the the lyrics, um, man, it's just great. It could have fit in really well on summer days, summer nights, in my opinion. But um, on its own, man, it's great. It's a great single. It was backed with There's No Other Like My Baby, a song that we both love uh, from the Party album. And uh, yeah, 8 out of 10, go jam it. <laughs> um, on the same day, believe it or not, Brian started a demo for a new song he had um, called Don't Talk. this time man he was just like going into the studio experimenting a lot which is really cool he was going in with tracks that weren't finished and um the next day he came in and did a song that was untitled but he would later title it in my childhood which we now know as you still believe in me that was another session that would lay dormant for a long time just like sloop john b which has been sitting around for months at this point it's really crazy but um he had all this he had all this access and all this time to work on tracks. Um, and then the very next day, October 15th, he went into the studio with Dick Reynolds, who they worked with on the Christmas album, The Arranger, um, and a 40-piece orchestra to do three really bizarre renditions of kind of classic songs, Stella by Starlight, How Deep is the Ocean, and Three Blind Mice. And Dick Reynolds sang on the tracks, which is really strange. Um, and a lot of people don't really understand why this session even happened and why nothing came of it. Um, some people think that Brian was just practicing, like working with an orchestra for the music that he was trying to make. And some people think that it was something that they were going to use for like movie or TV and the Beach Boys were going to sing over it later. Um, Beach Boys historian Craig Slowinski said, for what it's worth, on the AFM contract for that session, no artist name is given. Brian Wilson is the employer listed in the box on the mid-left side, while the employer's name in the upper right corner has been typed over with X's and replaced with Capitol Records. Richard Reynolds is listed as the leader. Brian cut these tracks utilizing a 40-piece orchestra at the huge United Studio across the lot from and in the same complex as Western, with the great legendary engineer Bones Howe. So really interesting, man. I don't have a lot of info on this, and I was having a hard time finding any info on it. Um, but it's really cool. If you've never heard it, um, we're playing a little bit of it now. So if anybody has any more info, let us know. It's another Beach Boys Unsolved Mystery. 
by starlight and not a dream my heart and I have a theory what is it well you know he was trying to get really more experimental and I think he I feel like what you said where he was almost just practicing or just saying okay let's see what just comes out of this maybe this is something we can use Right. Because, you know, this is kind of almost going closer to where he wanted to go with the smile stuff. So, I don't know. I just I feel like this is Brian trying to see what he can really do. Well, it's no secret that he was experimenting with drugs at the time. And oh, yeah. a lot of people said that he would often just call a session with no real reason and would just pull in a bunch of musicians and sometimes they would all show up and they would have nothing to do and he would send them home. So who knows exactly what was going on here, but uh, really interesting, really, really interesting. And, and just to think about the days in succession here, October 13th, recording The Little Girl I Once Knew and Don't Talk, the first demo, and then the next day recording In My Childhood or You Still Believe In Me, and then the next day doing these three songs with Dick Reynolds. It's just really crazy to think about. Like, what a bizarre <laughs> three days, you know? Anyway, moving on. Mike Love was moving in a grooving. And you know what that means. It's time for story time with Cousin Mike. Boom. I first saw her at the recording session for the Beach Boys Party album in September of 1965. She had dark hair with bangs, full lips, large brown eyes, and olive skin. Physically toned and strikingly beautiful, Suzanne Belcher was the sexiest girl I'd ever seen. She was there with a friend, and I walked over, introduced myself, and asked her out. She said she had a boyfriend in the military, but she agreed to meet me. It didn't take long to appreciate that she was creative and artistic, and in an era of miniskirts, wore one that put all others to shame. I had been divorced for two years and had been living the life of a rock star. I had a girlfriend in every city except in those cities in which I had two or three. But Suzanne rocked my world. I was still young, 24, and Suzanne was only 19, living at home. I knew that I didn't want to lose her. I was more into serial relationships than serious ones. But the way I was brought up, if you were serious, you made a commitment. So after dating for about two weeks, Suzanne and I flew to Las Vegas and were married. It was impulsive, but I knew the life that I had wasn't the one I wanted, and I thought I would find it with Suzanne. All the Beach Boys were tying the knot. Both Brian and Al got married in 1964. In August of 1965, Dennis, now 20, married Carol Friedman. Around that time, Carl met Annie Hinchie. Carl had given Annie an engagement ring within months of meeting her. Getting married young was pretty common back then. But it was still something that Brian, Dennis, and Carl were all married within 14 months and all by the same judge. And Suzanne and I became homeowners 
as well. She saw a for sale sign on a property at 1215 Coldwater Canyon in Beverly Hills. She said it was her favorite, so I bought it. We were all looking for stability. I believe we each hoped that settling down would give us more of an anchor and would reconnect us to the lives that we once knew. Well, thank you, Mike. And what a cool little story because as he said, kind of on a whim, he married Suzanne Belcher in Las Vegas. And I think, you know, he was feeling a little bit left out because everybody else was getting married or in serious relationships. You know, um, Brian was now living with Marilyn and in their house in Laurel Way. And Al was married to Linda. Denny got married to Carol recently. And Carl was dating um, his future wife, Annie Hinchy, who we talked about a little bit in the party episode because she was Billy Hinchy's older sister. And they hit it off right away and were just head over heels in love with each other. And uh, Mike was really smart for the most part, especially like in business and um, in music, but he always struggled with his relationships. And that will be coming up again in the future, of course. But just love that little story from, from Cousin Mike. On October 22nd, the Beach Boys, including Brian, were on the Andy Williams show in Burbank, where they did Help Me Rhonda, Their Hearts Were Full of Spring, and Little Honda, but they had to change the title to Little Cycle. And um, they did they did it with Andy Williams, and uh, it's really kind of humorous. Andy? Yeah. You used to sing your, with your brothers, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I did. Well, why don't you do a number with us? Well, I don't know. Uh, we uh, sing a song about a motorcycle. It'll be very easy. Uh, just watch me, and I'll show you when to shift gears. <laughs> All right. I'm going to wake you up early because I'm going to take a ride with you. We're going down to the circle shop. We'll tell you what we're going to do. Put on a ragged sweatshirt. I'll take you anywhere you want me to. First gear, it's all right. Second gear, believe it right. Third gear, hang on tight. Faster, it's all right. It's not a big motorcycle, just a groovy little motorcycle. They had to change the title because they, the network executives didn't want any of the sponsors getting mad because of the free advertising that Honda was getting. So, just kind of to play play it fair they changed the name to little cycle or sickle as mike says at one point so pretty fun little show it's really cool seeing brian playing with the group you know back in his in his striped shirt and they're like they're all getting a little bit chunkier especially carl and brian you know uh, the next day they did another tv show the jack benny hour in uh, california as well um, where they did uh, california girls and Barbara Ann, and they did a short little skit with Jack Benny and Bob Hope, which is hilarious. I'm sure a lot of you have seen it. Look what just drove up. Looks like a couple of senior citizen dropouts. <laughs> hey, get a load of this set of wheels. Looks like a Dunmerit Velasco with a flat coupe. No, I think it's a Chrysler Mill. No, I think it's a cut-off today. Oh, tell us where the big ones are breaking. You mean you don't know this part of the ocean? Now, nah, we've been doing our surfing at Arrowhead. <laughs> Arrowhead? That's a lake. Yeah, how do you get your waves? 
We got our own jacuzzi. <laughs> I think the Jack Benny show was trying to be more relevant with younger audience, so they had the Beach Boys on there and did some comedy with them. And I think Brian is like actually the best of all of them in the little skit they did. Um, he's actually pretty decent, but um, it's pretty cringy as far as like the acting. And, and we're going to get into that in a minute too, because that goes into what we're going to talk about later. But on November 1st, Brian was back in the studio with the Wrecking Crew doing another untitled new session called Trombone Dixie eventually. Let's go. This is... Uh... Okay, let's run this number down. Okay, no. Here we go. This is... Let's uh... <clears throat> take one, all right? Let's really think it over now. Just really play as well as you can. You can hear sometimes the Wrecking Crew talk about how they... We're not really sure where these songs were going, but as soon as they started hearing them and, and getting them all put together, and then they started hearing the vocals, it was just amazing. So pretty exciting times. Um, November eighth, they released the party album, like we talked about. It was a it was a smash hit. And uh, November seventeenth, Brian's back in the studio doing another instrumental called "Run James Run," which we know as Pet Sounds. still not doing any vocals for these songs but brian has these ideas for these great arrangements and wants to get them down when he can uh it was also around this time that brian installed the sandbox in his house so the oh man famed sandbox with the piano inside of it but there are no actual pictures as far as i know um i think somebody said that Marilyn has pictures but no one's actually got copies of them but um yeah, he put a sandbox in, I think, the dining room of his house and put his grand piano in it. And for a while, it was really cool because he could go sit at the piano and take his shoes off and feel like he was at the beach and just kind of a, a novelty to have. But soon, the piano started getting sand in it and it was kind of ruining the piano and he had to vacuum it out. And then the dog started going to the bathroom in the sandbox and it just got really weird. So... It didn't last that long, 
but people sure do love to talk about it, man. It is a big deal to people. Um, I think it was just a funny idea that Brian had because he had all this money and access at the time and was just kind of looking for anything to inspire him, take him to the next level. Um, because there was a lot of competition. Um, and speaking of that, on December 6th, the Beatles released Rubber Soul. Norwegian wood. No, this bird has flown. Take three. When we were working on Norwegian wood, it just needed something. I just picked the sitar up and kind of found the notes, and I just kind of played it. And it just seemed to hit the spot. I wanted a girl, or should I say, she wanted me. Our whole attitude was changing. We'd grown up a little. I think grass was really influential in a lot of our changes, especially with, with the writers. There are places I remember all my life, though some have changed. They were getting more and more interested in unusual sounds, and um, they were trying out new instruments and always coming to me saying, what, what ideas have you got for this, you know? We'd be saying, well, can we, we're only go, ooh, and, and ee, ee, and he'd say, well, look, chaps, I thought of this this afternoon, and we'd say, oh, great. Rubber Soul was an indication of the way things were going to go. It's one of my favorite albums. I think it's a great album. I'm looking through you, you're not the same. The title Rubber Soul was kind of, hey, man, it's got soul. It's a lot of soul, a lot of soul, that music. It was a spoof on that, you know. Seemed nice and amusing, very us, you know, very wacky. Plastic soul, man, plastic soul. Beep, 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 yeah! Beep, 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 yeah! Beep, 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 yeah! And in America, the track listing was a little bit different, but uh, still a really, really cohesive, amazing album that Brian fell in love with instantly. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the Beatles today because we've been talking about them for a long time now on the podcast because they keep popping in as little side notes because what we're talking about has so much to do with it. There's a lot of similarities, a lot of differences. And I think Jason would agree with me that, you know, the Beatles and the Beach Boys are the two greatest bands of all time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Right after the zombies. <laughs> yes. Just kidding. Of course. Just um, kidding. The Beatles and the Beach Boys are the best. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it was my two biggest influences since I was six. Of course. So I grew up around the Beach Boys music, but also equally, if not more, the Beatles music, like a lot of people my age did, because uh, my parents being in the baby boomer era, you know, were young teenagers when that craze hit so it was a big part of their adolescence and in turn became a big part of mine and i think the next generation is is uh getting down with it too so it's uh it's universal and it's hard to deny how amazing these songs and albums are and they kind of came onto the scene in the uk in early 1963 and had some really big hits but didn't really 
didn't really have any releases in the U.S. until they put out their debut album in February of 1964 in America. So they were on the same label. They were on EMI, and then um, which would be Capital in America. Uh, their album Meet the Beatles climbed to number one because they played the Ed Sullivan Show, as everybody's seen and loved. Um, probably the biggest, most important moment in rock and roll history. That concert, that show, everybody was watching it, and apparently, like the word is that crime like dropped like ninety percent or something while that was on TV. Even the criminals were watching it. <laughs> yeah, that's always a great. It's quote. pretty amazing. At the time, the Beach Boys were the most popular band in America, and then all of a sudden, they were hit with this craze, this British invasion. And it started with Beatles, but it would also include other bands like the Rolling Stones, obviously, and the Kinks and Zombies and etc. But the Beatles just kind of led that charge and just kind of blew everybody away because they had all this material they were sitting on and that had already been released, but a lot of people in the U.S. had never heard it. And they came over here and brought their, you know, mop top haircuts and clean cut suits and they just were a breath of fresh air for a lot of people here and um, people just fell in love with them man the songs are super catchy and they're good looking dudes and they were full of personality and uh, their first album jumped to number one and it was there for 11 weeks until it was replaced by their second album isn't that insane <laughs> so uh, they were suddenly faced the Beach Boys were suddenly faced with this threat and they had to figure out a way to respond and they came out with fun, fun, fun and don't worry baby and nothing could really touch the Beatles at the top of the charts until they came out with I Get Around in the summer and it jumped to number one. It was their first number one hit and it beat out the Beatles, which is crazy. So really awesome. It was a really big moment for the Beach Boys because they were basically establishing themselves and saying, look, we're still here and we're going to be back on top and we're America's band and you may be the hot new thing, but we've been around for a minute, and we're we're still the best, dude. Get off our turf. Um, and I get around is like a tough song too. I mean, it's like it's kind of like "Don't Mess with Us." It's really, really awesome, and it's a great response to the Beatles coming in and kind of you know taking over. That summer, they put out their first movie, "Hard Day's Night," which was a huge hit as well, and everybody loved it because the songs were wonderful and catchy and memorable, but the Beatles were also great actors. Like they were really full of, of personality and they're all very funny and they were all very different. So one of the things that set them apart from the Beach Boys was the fact that they were so in the limelight as far as their personalities and their humor. Whereas the, the Beach Boys were a little harder to pin down because Dennis was really the only one that had the personality in the Beach Boys. Everybody loved Dennis. You know, all the girls wanted to be with him and tried to mob him, but my mom saw the Beach Boys in 65 and she didn't know any better. She saw Bruce Johnston, but she thought it was Brian because they never even like acknowledge it, you know? Like it was just like this group of guys that a lot of the girls weren't really familiar with. Um, but the Beatles were anything but that. I mean, the Beatles, everybody knew all of them by name. They knew their favorite color. They knew what their, you know, what songs they sang and all this stuff. And it was just really, really uh, distinct, their personalities. They were market. I mean, the Beatles were marketed as individuals and a band from the beginning, mm -hmm. whereas the Beach Boys were just marketed as a sound. Just to be honest with you, so you did have the personalities of Dennis or Brian, but 
That wasn't a prevalent major thing. You know, it took the Beatles publicist to turn Brian Wilson into Brian Wilson that you know now. So he's the guy who started that process. And that wasn't until after the Beatles were huge and we're talking 65, 66. So um, that's a big difference, you know. With the Beach Boys, it was more of marketing the California sound, marketing America's sound in, in a way. Whereas the Beatles were marketed as individuals. And they were the sound of England, but there was a lot of other sound of England that came with them. So just different approaches. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, but when the Beatles came out, I think um, Carl being the youngest member of the Beach Boys was a huge fan. Um, he was a big fan of a lot of the same influences that the Beatles had. So obviously like... Um, Chuck Berry and early rock and roll and rhythm and blues and some of the country music. So um, I think Carl took to him right away, and especially as a guitarist. I mean, it was like guitar-driven music. George Harrison was one of the coolest guitar players ever. John Stebbins said that Carl was in love with them from day one, and he was the biggest Beatles fan on earth. Kind of ties into Carl getting to sing some of the Beatles songs on the Party album, and then also doing... Um, kind of the Beach Boys version of a Beatles song which was uh, Girl Don't Tell Me which we talked about a couple weeks ago so good kind of an answer to Ticket to Ride kind of the first time that Brian acknowledges the Beatles in music form when Hard Day's Night premiered in the Bay Area in advance of the LA premiere Carl chartered a private plane and invited David Marks now playing with his own band along with him and they immediately switched to playing Rickenbacker guitars so uh, Dennis was also a really big fan, according to Stebbins. So that was really cool. And I think um, as they moved into more folk music and as they were more influenced by that, Al got really into the Beatles music too. Um, and the Beatles had merchandise and movies and, and like you were saying, like the, just the marketing that, that they did for the Beatles was so much better and so much more well-crafted. That's a big part of it. But I mean, the songs speak for themselves. It's, you know, make no mistake. Um, but, you know, throughout 1965, the Beach Boys and Beatles kind of went back and forth. The Beatles had a few big records, a few big hits, and then the Beach Boys had huge hits as well. And I think when you really can tell that they started respecting each other was when the Beatles put out Rubber Soul. And uh, Brian said that Rubber Soul came out and sent me right to the piano bench. It's a whole album of Beatles folk songs, a whole album where everything flows together and everything works. I remember being blown away by You Won't See Me and I'm Looking Through You and Girl. It wasn't just the lyrics and the melodies, but the production and their harmonies. They had such a unique harmony. In You Won't See Me, Paul sings low and George and John sing high. There's an organ drone in there, a note that's held down for the last third of the song or so. Those were touches they were trying almost art music. What was so great about the Beatles was you could hear their ideas so clearly in their music. They didn't pose like some other bands. And they didn't try to stuff too much meaning in their songs. They might be singing a song about loneliness or a song about anger or a song about feeling down. They were great poets about simple things, but that's also what made it easier to hear the songs. And they never did anything clumsy. It was like perfect pitch, but for entire songs. Everything landed on its feet. Great quote from Brian. And uh, the U.S. version featured I've Just Seen a Face and It's Only Love. Um which I think are great. And I would almost argue that the U.S. version is just as good, if maybe not better, than the U.K. version. And is that your argument? Whose argument is that? Mine. 
I disagree. <laughs> I, I mean, I know it's controversial, but I think I've just seen a face. It's only love. Oh yeah, those songs are incredible. I mean, the only reason I don't completely sign on to that is because it's missing nowhere, man. That's crazy. <laughs> it's missing nowhere, man. I know. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, there's just because of that fact alone, it can't be equal. But because it influenced Pet Sounds, there's a lot of gravitas there for sure. So I, I made my own playlist of the U.S. version. And that's kind of what I've been listening to when I've been thinking about this, because that's what Brian was listening to. People don't really understand that the Beatles put out different records in the U.S. than they did in the U.K., and they were crafted a little bit differently. Um, in this case, I understand why Brian latched onto it. It's such a great record, such a great flow to it. Um, there's a lot of folky elements to it. There's a lot of harmonies on it, and the sonic quality of it is beautiful as well. I mean, George Martin is such a brilliant producer. And the guys were playing so well. I mean, they played everything on the record. I mean, it's not like the Beach Boys where they were bringing in the wrecking crew. No offense to the Beach Boys, but they weren't on par with the Beatles as far as instrumentalists at all. Like, that's just a fact. Um, no, I mean, the Beatles, of, the Beatles were outside also Outside of Carl, older. none of them were like craftsmen, you know? And yeah, the Beatles were a little bit older, but I mean, they were basically yeah, they were way older in band years. In yeah, terms band of, years, like maybe, but I mean, Paul and Brian are a week apart, basically, like in age. They were fantastic musicians at this point, even though they were 22, you know, years old on, on average. But you know, I think you can definitely tell from listening to Rubber Soul and then moving into Pet Sounds the influence it had on Brian, not only. Um, like from a songwriting point of view, but from like a, a sonic point of view, like Brian really took it to the next level and wanted to make an album that he considered the greatest album of all time. And he was he was put to that task by Rubber Soul. And I think that's why these albums are so important. And I think there's a great argument for Pet Sounds being the same effect on Paul McCartney and making Sgt. Peppers. And mm -hmm. I think there's plenty of examples why. The Beatles were so big. Um, and such a big deal and such a cultural revolution that no one American group came close. I mean, the Beach Boys are the closest, but it's still, you know, no contest. If you really want to talk about cultural influence and importance and influence in general, and there's no, there's never been a band that can match up with the Beatles. So all that to say, all of Brian Wilson's singular you know, production, writing, arranging stuff that he did showed that he, maybe not as a cultural influence, but as a musician and a musical force, he was up there, if not better than the four guys in the, in the Beatles, in my opinion. But the problem was the Beatles were four geniuses and Brian was only one. And don't get me wrong, uh, Ringo is a drumming genius. Just ask drummers that have studied his playing. But that's a different topic. Yeah, I mean, I'm not one to really ask or or argue which band is better because I think there's merits for both, and I think you know we'd be here all day talking about that. And we're sure uh, we're a Beach Boys podcast, so I don't think we really have a have a uh, you know objective opinion on this. But um, you know, if there's one thing that can be said, the Beatles were you know always the four, like as far as, you know, when they started putting out records, it was those four guys. And those four guys were very, very important to the records. 
And as they went on, the four guys individually became more important and they started to split off. And that was what ultimately caused them to break up. But with the Beach Boys, it was always about Brian's songs and Mike's lyrics. And, you know, with a few exceptions, especially early on, and then the band as a whole being great singers and the harmonies are what made them so amazing, you know, and they became great musicians and they became great players and songwriters in their own right. But that's what the difference was, at least to start um, as a whole and including George Martin, you know, because George Martin kind of was the Brian Wilson in the studio for them. They were, you know, on par creatively and sonically with the Beach Boys for the most part of their career. I get high when I see you go by My oh my When you sigh my My inside just flies When I first heard it, I flipped I, I said I want to make an album like that where all the songs seemed to be like a collection of folk songs, you know? And uh, we did Pet Sounds after that. The inspiration for Pet Sounds was Rubber Soul. I think Brian in his competitive world uh, thought he could probably maybe make a better album in terms of front to back. Little did he know he did. I took the American version of Pet Sounds in May of 66 to England and then Keith Moon and I hit it off stupendously and then Keith had brought Lennon McCartney over to the hotel and we, we were able to sit down and check this out and I put it on my record player with the speakers in it. That's what I was able to get from the hotel to play music, okay. So I was able to play the mono which sounded great. And then uh, we played it through, and then we played it again. And, and, they, and Lennon McCartney, they were awesome. They were so polite and cool and loved the music. It was a great experience. Apparently, the vibe of Wouldn't It Be Nice crept into here, there, and everywhere on the Revolver album. To lead a better life, I need my love to be here.
The Beatles and the Beach Boys were chasing each other up a spiral. It's like the never-ending spiral. Yeah, um, you know, Brian Wilson sort of proved himself to be like a really amazing composer. Yeah. And I was into you know, chords and harmonies and stuff at that time. And we ended up, it's kind of like a rivalry. Yeah. We'd put a song out and Brian would hear it and he'd do one, which is nice. It's like me and John. You know, you kind of try and top each other all the time. But um, he eventually came out with this God Only Knows. That was which, Pet Sounds time, on, right? on, on Pet Sounds, yeah. yeah. I just think it's a great song, melody, harmonies, words, yeah. you know. It's, it's a great song, I love it, you know. It's just one of my, it's, it's my favorite Beach Boy song. I may not always love you, but long as there are stars above you, you never need to doubt it I'll make you so sure about it God only knows what I'd be without you What Brian had done was to write a beautiful song full of unusual changes and then devise a tapestry of sounds to enhance it. The world will show nothing to me For me it was fascinating being a musical detective, looking at the song's structure, back in the sort of studio in which I'd spent most of my working life. Pet Sounds was a huge hit in the UK and not as big of a hit in America. So also really interesting that the Beach Boys were named the world's most outstanding vocal group over the Beatles in New Musical Express on December 10th, 1966. Yeah, I mean, Pet Sounds was such a huge thing. See, that's the thing. You and I have the perspective, and most American fans have the perspective of Beatles versus Beach Boys purely because the Beatles came over here and wiped everybody out and were the biggest band of all time. But the British folks, man, they flipped for the Beach Boys and Pet Sounds and stuff after it, too. Um, and to this day, Brian Wilson, you know, is very well known that when he goes and tours over there, you know, it's the kind of legendary attention he should be getting here in the U.S. And those fans know that music better than we do. And so and I think it's the same, though. I think the Beatles are kind of overkill to a lot of English people. It's like, oh, yeah, whatever. We love them. But, you know, that's just... Yeah, that's like Well, it was whatever. also, I mean, the Beach Boys, like, you know, you were saying, like, they were they were really popular in, in, in other markets because they were such an encapsulation of American youth, you know? It Correct. Was, it was exotic. I mean, it was the California myth. So they were really popular around the world for that reason. They were huge in Australia and Germany and Switzerland and, you know, all these other countries. And um, equally in the UK, especially when Pet Sounds came out, Brian said... Paul and I stayed in touch. He came to my house and told me about the new music he was working on. There's one song I want you to hear, he said. I think it's a nice melody. He put on the tape, and it was She's Leaving Home. My wife Marilyn was there, too, and she just started crying listening to Paul. It was hard for me to think about the effect my music had on other people, but it was easy to see when it was another songwriter. Wednesday morning at 5 o'clock as the day begins Silently closing her bedroom door 
note that she hoped would say more She goes downstairs to the kitchen Clutching her handkerchief Quietly turning the back door key Stepping outside she is free Brian, not too long after that, wrote a song called Where Is She? That was never released on a record, but came out um, more recently on the Made in California box set. And I think it's a little bit too close to She's Leaving Home in a lot of ways. So that's probably why it didn't make a record, but it would have probably been on um, Sunflower or something around that era. But what a beautiful song. Um, Both songs. Where can she be if she's not here with me? So, Sgt. Peppers came out. Brian said that with a little help from my friends was his favorite Beatles song. And the Beach Boys recorded it in 1967 during their Wild Honey sessions with Bruce, Bruce singing lead. And yeah. I think it's really awesome. They do a pretty, you know, true to the original version. Um, and that was eventually released on the Beach Boys Rarities LP. Or, we've already talked about the other covers the Beach Boys did. Um, they obviously did some songs on the Party album, and they would play You've Got to Hide Your Love Away live with Dennis singing lead, and uh, they were big fans, man, and the it's funny enough, the Beach Boys, it's funny enough, the Beatles never covered any Beach Boys songs, but they didn't really do any covers after, like, 1965, so... Another song that Brian loved was uh, Strawberry Fields Forever. And he said that when he heard that on the radio, he abandoned Smile because he felt as though he was never going to produce anything as great. What an interesting quote because he you know, was trying to find the new sound. And I think, of course, you know, and he, I think the quote he said was, well, they already did it. They got the new sound before I could. I mean, there are a million reasons why they didn't finish Smile. And I think they changed their answer very frequently, but. Yeah, nobody um, wants to own up to a failure. So. No, and that's <laughs> but that's a really interesting take on it because yeah, I mean they're pushing each other back and forth and getting better, but at some point, you know, I think Brian Wilson kind of admitted defeat. Sadly, when uh, he heard Strawberry Fields Forever and he had all these songs that were unfinished and all these pieces that weren't really fitting together, and I think he just got overwhelmed and decided that it was best to shelve it. So. We'll obviously get into that a lot later on. 
Martin. George Martin said in 2001, it could be argued that the Beatles had become the most important group of the 60s. They defined the era. Yet, I have to say that Brian was the musician who challenged them most of all. No one made a bigger impact on the Beatles than Brian. I agree to that. Competition with the Beatles? Well, more like a rivalry in a sense, in a positive way. You know, it's a mutual admiration thing, I think. You know, we we love their music and they loved ours and we're, we're competitive. Our, our song, Good Vibrations, went to number one in 1966 and we were voted in the fall, I think November of 66, we were voted the top, number one group in Great Britain, number two being the Beatles. <laughs> so, I mean, nobody's been more successful in music than, than the Beatles and, you know, Paul McCartney uh, and the, all the guys, I was invited by Maharishi to go to India, which I'd never been, so I, I went. And when I got there, all the Beatles were there. And it was the most fascinating time of my life up, up to that point. Because they started with transcendental meditation. They did, they did. And I think Harrison, George Harrison, was the guy who kind of enlightened them on that. Yeah, well, very much so. He was into all things India. He studied sitar. Yes. He loved his meditation. He wrote that song, My Sweet Lord, Hare Krishna, Hare Ram. And so I did a, a tribute to George on the album that I have out called Unleash the Love. And I did a, 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 a tribute to George, who was a wonderful person, a great, great guy, very spiritual, very, you know, very low-keyed. They call him the Quiet Beetle. But what it was is he he was real down-to-earth kind of thing. He, he never forgot his roots, you know. Brian did say about George... The other Beatle that really got to me was George Harrison. He was so spiritual. He had a way of making things simple. Give me life, give me love, give me peace on earth. I remember that during the early years of the Beatles, it was hard to think of him as a separate songwriter. But after Here Comes the Sun, I started to pay attention to him and his songs as their own kind of thing. Maybe every group needed someone like that. A deeply soulful presence who wasn't exactly at the middle of the band. We had Carl. I never met George, but many years later I did a show for him. In 2015, his widow Olivia called me and asked me to play at George Fest in Hollywood. Hell yes, I said. We played My Sweet Lord. But I would have done any of George's songs. He wrote beautiful ones. So I thought that was a great quote that I had never read before. Yeah, that's great. And uh, comparing George to Carl, like, kind of um, hit my heartstrings pretty hard, man. Because, yeah. Yeah. I mean, you got to think, like, every band needs, like, their soulful spiritual one. Like Mike Love. Who kind of like silently tied the band together. Yeah, like Mike Love. So that brings me to the next uh, topic. <laughs> that was uh, your segue, man. Pisces Brothers. <laughs> so Mike Love put a song on his most recent record, but it was actually written like, I think back in the 80s. Yeah, I think so. A song called Pisces Brothers about his trip to Rishikesh and meeting George Harrison. And um, it's what it is, you know? Jam if you it. see If you see the Beach Boys in concert nowadays, you hear that song. <laughs> There's a big video montage letting you know that Mike Love hung out with the Beatles. Just so you know. As if anyone doesn't know that already. Um, Mike is going to keep telling you. He's really proud of it, man. Just like he was really proud of him being buddy-buddy with Muhammad Ali and stuff. It's awesome. When you get to hang out with your oh, heroes yeah. and, and meet them, you talk about it all the time. I understand. And if completely. you haven't seen the Beach Boys Rock and Roll Hall of Fame induction speech, you need to watch that because Mike Love says some awesome stuff. It's why it's why I became a fan. Oh, okay. I, I get that. <laughs> all right. Uh, so real quick. What are your top five Beatles albums? 
in this order, um, it's going to be A Hard Day's Night at number one. Number two would be Rubber Soul. Number three would be Help. Number four, Revolver. And number five, Beatles for Sale. Hard Day's Night is my favorite record because it is just unbelievable, powerful record. It's 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 rocking. And I know it's not rocking like the Kinks or the Who, like Distorted or whatever, but it is energetic. It's John Lennon at the high and and people were would just were just gonna throw like gigantic boulders at my car after I say this. But this is when John Lennon was at his best. This is his best writing, his most melodic, but also very visceral to an extent. So Hard Day's Night's ridiculously good. And Rubber Soul is really hard to not be number one for me because it's the showcase for everybody. Between Rubber Soul and Revolver, which George always thought that they were both kind of the same album in a way, but they're not. They're very different. But um, it's that's, this, this is when they become individuals, but they're still a band. So, and you know, Help's a great soundtrack, but just, I mean, beyond that, it's a really big step forward for them musically. Just, I don't know, it's a little more folky. Their most Dylan-influenced stuff, maybe, to an extent. Um, and you know, uh, Revolver is experimental and the best of see that's the thing and the reason why Sgt. Pepper's not on my list is because Revolver's the better version of experimental rock and I know it was not as culturally important as Sgt. Pepper because Sgt. Pepper kind of defined an entire generation if you really want to think about that the, you know the love children um, and the summer of love and all that stuff and then Beatles for Sale is probably a record that's really under underappreciated because it's got some covers on there that aren't amazing but the thing with Beatles for Sale is the melancholy on that record is so underrated. And me being a guy who obviously loves Brian Wilson and like Burt Backrack music and Jimmy Webb and, and all those type of writers and Neil Young, very melancholy writers, right? Well, I think this is the Beatle record that really influenced that mood and a lot of that kind of music. So I know that's kind of strange, but... That's why I love that album so much. And I love the sound of it, too. I'm into that. It's hard to argue with that list. Um, I have four of the same five of yours, but um, a different order. My number one is Help. And that's been my favorite since I was about seven years old. And I had the Help VHS tape. And I just fell in love with that movie when I was a kid. And the songs just are so nostalgic to me. And the soundtrack record is so perfect. It's great. Um, and uh, I have the Help Silhouettes tattooed across my back. I love that record, man. I, uh, I gotta say. My second one is Rubber Soul. I think we've talked enough about it. It's just a great collection of work. Really, really strong songs and a really great emotional and sonic tie-in. Uh, and then Sgt. Pepper's is my number three. Again, just it's a really important record. Lots of great songs. A big Paul record. And then Revolver after that is, to me, like a, the most, the strongest John Lennon record. Um, love that record. Love the sound of it. Love the, the playing of it. Love the drumming. Um, and, it, and with Revolver, I would always also include um, Rain and Paperback Rider. So... 
incredible era. So good. Um, and then my number five is A Hard Day's Night. Again, like you said, there's just great songs on it. It's really the last time. Um, I'm sorry, it's really like, the, in my opinion, the, the most they ever felt like a band was that record. Um, oh, yeah. Even though George wasn't really represented as a songwriter at the time, but I'm saying, like, they were still just a rock combo at that time. They weren't going crazy with any instrumentation. They were just playing and singing their asses off, so to speak. It's great. Um, and that record, Hard Day's Night, spawned one of my all-time, all-time favorite groups, The Birds. Yeah. Because Roger McGuinn bought a 12-string after he heard and saw A Hard Day's Night. And so if you're a big Birds devotee like me, because they made some amazing, amazing, like underrated music, just to be honest with you, um, thanks Hard Day's Night for that. For sure. Um, but yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot. We've, I mean, you could talk a lot more about the Beatles and Beach Boys and just all the similarities and I feel like everybody's going to write in and be like, why didn't you mention this? Why didn't you mention that? It's like, well, we do a podcast that's about an hour long. So <laughs> this, one, this one's like six hours long. What are you talking about? Yeah, we love the Beatles, man. There's no, there's no competition in our homes. We love both. So if you're looking for some sort of controversy or some sort of which is better, we're not going to have that argument. We're obviously like huge Beach Boys fans. So I hope everybody enjoys the rest of their day, whatever you're doing. Um, we're looking forward to our next episode, which is going to be starting off with Pet Sounds. So we're going to start off with Sloop John B. So y'all get your captain's hats on and hoist up the John B. sails because we're setting out, baby. It's going to be great. Um, that being said, thank you guys for joining us. If you want to write us, sail on podcast at gmail.com write us and uh, tell us what your favorite Beatles album is and tell us what we missed as far as like Beatles and Beach Boys crossovers uh, also give us a call leave us a voicemail 615-606-3887 check us out on the web sailonsounds.com also our Facebook page I'll leave a link in the show notes and our Patreon check it out check it all out um, Instagram, Twitter, Sail On Sounds. And anything else from you, Jason? No. Nope. <laughs> um, we'll see you guys real soon. Thank you very much. Music by Will C. And Sail On Sailors.
If you meet anyone that doesn't like either the Beatles or Beach Boys, then there's probably something seriously wrong with them. They probably just, just like say it. They probably are just really into like Tool. Well, they probably are a Tool. 